Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. We start our next quarter in September and we'd love to have you along for the ride. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert, for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com. Good morning, everybody. I'm uh, really pleased to have Nick Winkleman with me this morning. I'm not going to do a formal uh, introduction of Nick. Um, I think 
his uh, resume stands for and speaks for itself. Uh, I had him on the show last year and we had a great conversation about his life and sort of where he's gone through and what he's gone through to create uh, who he is today. And one of his impassioned uh, projects over the last few years was crafting and building a book that's called The Language of Coaching, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement. And um, I reached out to Nick to see if he would come on the podcast uh, because for several reasons. One, I I am inspired by Nick's work. Uh, I enjoy chatting with him when I do have the chance in, in this industry. It's not always easy to have those chances to have conversations, even in the in the hallways between uh, presentations and things. Um, and, you know, I know he's trying to get his book out there and let people know about what he's done. And you know, oftentimes there's book tours and different things that you have to do. And I tried to attend his uh, seminar series on the book, but I felt like, uh, you know, the audience that I have is uh, strong enough and big enough now that, um, you know, they should hear about this book and they should hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, so I want to compliment you first by just by saying that congratulations for making this thing happen and bring it to, to life. Oh, Scott, th- thank you so much. I mean, like you, I've I've been witness to so many of your own passion projects, obviously the podcast being one of them. And so anytime you can put everything you have in a very deep focused way into any medium and then see it come to life and start to impact lives, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing. So I'm very excited about it. <laughs> I want to say to the listener, you know, um, Nick, Nick didn't reach out to me. I reached out to him and I want to be honest that I, I, I'm going to pump your tires. This is a fantastic book and, uh, you, you are, um, what I admire in you and have always admired in you whenever I've met you or listened to you speak is you have this incredible mix of passion, um, you know, education, uh, an academic insight, um, an homage to those who have passed before you that have, you know, brought you that, that knowledge. Um, and then this really, you know, you have a package of experience that's just uh, really phenomenal and you've, you've done such a great job in this book of bringing that all to life. I mean, how hard was that? <laughs> wow. Wow. How hard was it? Well, you should ask my wife. <laughs> She'll probably give you an answer. She'll give you an answer that is uh, far more blatant. In mind, you know, you know, many many people walk out of a book project saying they never want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Or you know, you hear if you had known how hard it would be, you never would have started in the first place. And I would say in both of those cases, I I don't represent those views. I would do it again in an instant. And I absolutely see other books in the future. And so as hard as it was um, to be able to start to see people taking this information, you know, someone literally just posted on Twitter that they had been struggling with this throws athlete Mm -hmm. and read the book and was able to use the section on external cueing just to take their ideas. Like they already had the ideas, but they needed to, they needed to nudge them a little bit of a different way to get them to impact the athlete. And they said it immediately caused the breakthrough. So when you start seeing things like that, Scott, and I'm sure it's no different than the feedback you get on the podcast and the other things you do, that makes you want to go at it again. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so it was difficult, you know, it's been over 10 years in the making 
I'd argue we talked about this on the last time I was on. The ideas of the book for me are go back to college, you know, so well over 15 years ago, but it's been 10 years in the making. And all along the way, I kind of had the, the ideation part of it where I was trying to figure it out selfishly for myself as a coach. How do I upgrade my own communication? How do I get my language on point so I can mechanize aha? You know what I mean? Mechanize the light bulb. Because <laughs> we all love that as a coach. When we see, when we say that cue or we use that constraint, and all of a sudden the eyes widen of the athlete, like they know it's going to work before they even try it. And then they go out and they do it. And whatever the skill is, they execute. And it's like it never goes backwards again. Like those are what I mean by the aha moments that I wanted to mechanize. And, and then inevitably you say, well, listen, I love this information so much. I believe I need to give it a platform that, that, that is big enough for our industry to, to digest and take it on board. Let me go down the academic route. And so I went and did the PhD to, to support this journey, not because I wanted to be an academic, but actually because I wanted to write this book. Mm. Like I want people to understand that I went to get a PhD so I could earn the right to write this mm. book. And, mm. and I mean that truthfully. And so when you get out of the PhD, it's like, okay, I, I, at that point, I've done seven years of in the trenches, applying, thinking, trial and error. And then I've also done the four years of the PhD and, and no one else had written the book. And you know, Scotty, I said, listen, I now feel that on both sides of the fence, I've, I've earned the right. And now I have a responsibility to, to get this information out because it, it exists, but it exists in textbooks. It exists in research papers. It is not common vernacular. Even though we communicate all the time, it is not common vernacular. We don't have a vocabulary as coaches to talk about our vocabulary as coaches. <laughs> and that's what this book is about. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Before I started to unpack that, I was just curious for my own interest is how you, how did you connect with Daniel Coyle and get, and get him to write a forward in this? That was really cool. Yeah. I mean, Scott, you know, cir circumstances just present themselves, you know, and I feel if you, if you work hard, those circumstances uh, by chance or choice seem to present themselves more often. And uh, an MLB team had just gotten early wind of this coach, this strength coach who's out there talking about coaching language and constraints. And so this MLB club rang me up and said, hey, we're looking to do a two-day on skill acquisition. Listen, we can't have someone come in and give us an academic dissertation. We are going to have coaches in the room who need to be able to take these principles and go out into training and really make a difference. And we heard, you know how to simplify some of this stuff, you know, and so we had a chat. And part of almost the interview was, hey, we want you to speak with our director of kind of culture and insight. I'm like, okay, awesome. Like, already awesome that you even have that role <laughs> in your organization. I'm like, who is it? They're like, Daniel Coyle. And I like fall. <laughs> I fall out of my seat. And I'm like, okay, so Daniel Coyle is going to be briefing me 
before I go into this organization. And so we had, we had one or two calls. I then go to the organization and literally in the audience is Daniel Coyle, Doug Lamove. I don't know if you've read Doug Lamove's work on, on practice. Perfect. He's got a new book himself coming out on coaching. He's an absolute superstar in the academic space for kind of primary secondary school teaching. And, and now he's, let's say, applying his work rightly so to coaching. So two individuals whose books have absolutely been formative in, in my own work are, are sitting in the audience. And those kind of, it was actually the first time I really presented what would become the language of coaching to an entire group of people. First time in its, in its pure form. And well, it, it went over fairly well. At least Dan continued to call me after that. We stayed in contact, stayed in contact with the club. Since then, other opportunities similar have presented themselves. And so when the book finally got to that stage, I thought, who better than someone who is a champion of, of growth, of development, of pursuing their best, notably in the coaching space? And when he said yes, I was just humbled by it, and I still am. So that's that's awesome. That's beautiful. Um, that sort of takes me into like the the way you wrote this. Uh, and again, paying respects to you is you know there's a lot of storytelling in it. It's really well done that way, and it it it, it reads not like an academic textbook, although it has all the fine points of an academic textbook, but it reads like, you know, there's a yarn to it, which I really appreciate. And one of the things I read, one of the quotes from the guys at the front, you have a whole host of uh, different quotes from fellas. And one of them uh, I have great respect for is Gray Cook. And Gray wrote, the longer I'm in the movement game from rehab to performance, the more I appreciate it when equal value is placed on information, experience, and reflection. In the language of coaching, Nick guides us to not overvalue one aspect and undervalue the others. Um, how did you intentionally or unintentionally have, find that happy place? Like, what, what, how did you set out to do that? So a couple of different notes. Uh, the day that I got the human kinetics contract to write the book, I put a little post out into the social media ether, and a, a former student of – the athletes performance mentorship program. He had been through all four phases. I think he even repeated one of them. <laughs> and so th this was one of our, our champions. He messaged me on WhatsApp and he said in, in such an honest voice, as honest as one can be in a, in text form, he says to me, Nick, our industry does not need another textbook. Please just share your experience with the world. And my, my first reaction was one of, of ego. And I'm like, who's this guy <laughs> messaging me, assuming that I'm just going to write a textbook, and who's he to tell me what to do? And you know what? He was right on. He was right on. And, and even though I think I would have gotten – where I did, you, you have to look at all those little colliding experiences that, that shape the journey. And so that text was probably the first time I had really thought about how I need to write this. And mm -hmm. so the first thing I will say is 
you have to have an avatar in front of you when you're writing. And by that, I mean, you have to have an audience. Who are you speaking to? You know, they say the, the book, a book, any book is a conversation, an intimate conversation between the author and the reader. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really tried to hone in that because one of the, the biggest pieces of feedback I ever got when I did a presentation course was to be more conversational. So even when we're presenting, which is a one-sided conversation, as is a book, but great books and great presentations feel like they're, they're, they're talking to me. They're speaking right to me. And so there's an art to doing that. And so, okay, not a textbook, but it needs to have a textbook rigor. Needs to feel conversational. Needs to feel intimate to the reader. It needs to feel like their journey and it needs to have space for their own thinking. And I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to revisit that point of what does Nick mean by the, the book needs to have space for their own thinking. And so I'm moving along. And so the avatar starts to reveal itself. It's this coach. It's this coach between, let's say, 23 and 33. And so they're, they're entering into their career or they're, they're early, they're mid into their career. And they, they have this thirst for something that is missing. They're reading Bampa. They're, they're, they're reading Vekashansky. They're reading Cook, uh, Spina. They're, they're getting all of this raw material. They're building this building of methodology and what, but yet they still feel something is missing around the communication piece, the engagement, the coaching. Everyone says it's called the art of coaching. You know, good luck. Just go watch other people and figure it out for yourself. Because I was that person. I was the one that it was invisible. I knew there was something more, but I couldn't put my finger on it. So, so I started to put that version. said, okay, this is the person. Every time I sat down to write, I looked at the wall in front of me here. I said, that's the person I'm talking to. And before I began writing then, I said, I, I want to write a book that feels to have the academic rigor of a textbook, but the narrative feel of Malcolm Gladwell. And by no means, let me be very clear here, I'm not comparing my work to Malcolm Gladwell by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted to walk that line such that I got feedback as you gave me there, Scott, that, hey, the book feels narrative. It feels story-esque, yet all the evidence is there for the taking if you want to flip to the back of the book and have a peek. And so I, I gained influence from Stephen King. Stephen King has a, a wonderful memoir on how to write. And I would encourage anyone who gets into the writing game, especially if they want to be more narrative-based in nonfiction, to read his book around how his process, which is unbelievably detailed, articulate, and accessible. The other thing that I thought about, and I don't know why, you know, horror books seem to stand out of my mind, is I loved reading Goosebumps as a kid. And what I loved about Goosebumps and really every book is not only the stories, but how at the end of every chapter, you're left on this cliffhanger. You're left wanting to turn the page. And so how could I end every paragraph, every chapter with you wanting more, with you wanting to go down the next step? And so when we start to look into that, it had to be narrative based. It had to be written in first person. If it's not written in first person, I suffer from not being able to feel like we're actually engaging and having a conversation. 
Um, I wanted to use the principles of the book to write the book Mm -hmm. such that if I'm trying to teach you how to use expressive language that is action-oriented, that is visual, that, that hides the micro, the detail in the macro in something accessible, I had to write with that same level of essence such that the book was an exemplar for what the book was about. And so these were all, if you would, the inner drives formulating how the book was was ultimately written. And the final piece was this. Story, when written correctly, leaves space for the imagination to take over. And it was important for me that every single person who reads the book can see themselves in the book. When I just give you nonfiction scientific fact, there's no play. Mm. There's limited room for curiosity. But when I tell a story that just gives the finer points but leaves space for you to fill in the context, the personality of the coach, what they're thinking, what they're about, you start to map yourself on to the story. You become part of the story. And that's what, why we love nonfiction, or excuse me, why we love fiction. And so as, as, as a final point to my ramble, that's, a, that's an ancillary but an important benefit of writing in the style that I tried to use. Yeah, it's, uh, again, you know, it's really well done. And one of the things that I really like about it is every so often you find yourself kind of asking questions and you're going, well, what what about this? And then this paragraph will come up where Nick will say, you're probably asking this at this point. (laughs) You go, that dog knew what I was thinking about. How did he know what I was thinking about? (laughs) There is a lot of, there's a lot of psychology in the way the book is written, but that we don't talk about explicitly 100%. Again, I wanted it to feel, for the people that know me, Scott, they they were able to read it like I was giving a Perform Better presentation. Mm. And that they like, this feels like you, your voice, those that really know know me. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but um, (laughs) I, I take it as a positive. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I did my best to crank through this puppy, but I'm about halfway through it. So I, oh, I, I worked oh, my, my little nuggies off so I could have some insight. And to, and to be honest with you, I think the last section is more, you know, really very, very much about deliverables, etc. Yes. But sort of to bring the listener sort of to, to bear on this, you, you take this book and you kind of look at three gross sections, or I shouldn't use the word gross, but uh, three in, in, in sections of it. One is to learn how to how does somebody learn uh, understand assimilate information etc how do we coach uh, and then how do we cue effectively so bringing the understanding to the reader through that sort of process and learning sort of takes into consideration the idea of focus on attention on memory and remembering how we remember what we learn and then coaching you get into your whole sort of background on cueing all the literature that sort of um, looks at that and how somebody processes cues and understands cues. You go into your 3D coaching concept and then you get into the analogy meta- and metaphor concept. And that's where you then take it into here's the how here's what you do use a, the deliverables kind of thing. So I've done the Cole's notes on that, but you know, how would you like to elaborate on that in terms of the re- the process that you're taking the reader through and why? Yeah, uh, 100%. You know, very much so an analogy for the book is part one, which is three chapters, 
Chapter one is, is on learning. Chapter two is on attention. And chapter three is on memory. I use fancier titles than that to attract the mind in the book, but that's <laughs> fundamentally part one. And that is laying the foundation for the house, so to speak. It is, it's the bedrock principles that if you understand the bedrock principles, you actually know what I'm going to say in part two. That's the beauty of it. It's not like part two is new. No, part two builds itself on that foundation. And then part three is you're moving into the house. You're decorating, you're using and benefiting from all the effort you just put in to put this scaffolding in this building together. Okay, so that's ultimately foundation, build the house, move in. Part one, part two, part three. In part one, I, I would say this for the reader, depending on the interest level, I do believe I've written the book in such a way you could technically start it at part one, part two, or part three. And let me just explain what I mean by that. If you just start in part three, you're going to learn to act out the right behaviors. You're going to see the cues. You're going to see the analogies mapped to familiar movements, of which there's 27 of these movements, movement grids, as I call them in the book. And if you just jump to part three and you start using these cues and analogies, you're going to be enacting the right coaching behaviors that are articulated in part one and part two. Now, the difference is you're not necessarily going to understand why they work. You're not going to be able to mechanize those strategies such that you can come up with new cues on your own, at least not as easily. But granted, you could start there. If you start in part two, you're just going to learn about the strategies. Beautiful. There are three key models. I present one model in each chapter for part two. Model number one is what I call the coaching communication loop. This is where you learn about the key communication categories that we use in the learning arena, such that when you're on the gym floor, you're on the pitch, you're on the ice, whatever your occupation is, you're going to start to understand, okay, this is the channel of communication. I describe a movement, I demonstrate a movement, I cue it, they do it, then we debrief it. And so it's this nice model that I believe will be intuitive to every movement professional that helps us. This is an important word for me, Scott, organize mm. how we communicate. So often the failure of communication is we misorder what we say. We give this long dissertation on how to perform a squat. Hidden inside that long dissertation are some really sharp analogies, some sharp cues, but they get smothered by all the other descriptive content of how to hold the bar, where the feet go, the knees go, how to breathe, and so on and so forth. And so without even giving you new language, the coaching communication loop simply shows you how to organize what already exists. We then get into the 3D model, which basically is how do you come up with, with cues? As you learn about in the book, this idea of external cues, the, the, the superpower of teaching movement from a language perspective. And then finally, analogies. And so if you go to part two, you just get the goods. You learn how to mechanize your coaching language in a useful, effective manner. Mm. If you start at part one, which if you can, I encourage you to, you're going to get to see the journey. One, the journey that I've gone on to learn all this but also the journey of, of why any and all of this matters 
And so let me just put a little bit of narrative around that. I can summarize the book very simply. The book is about how your words as a coach shape your athlete or your client or your patient's focus, their attention. Words shape focus, attention. Think about this. So I'm asking you to consider this thought to shape the spotlight you put on your body and the world around it. And ultimately then, we are inquiring, how does that focus, how does that thought ultimately influence the way we move in the moment and ultimately the way we learn to move long-term? Words to thoughts to movement. Full stop, that is the book. So part one dives into what is attention? What is learning? And how does attention turn into something we can remember, memory, that ultimately forms into this movement that we can then say someone has learned? Mm-hmm. That's part one. Part two, how do you mechanize that? How do you engage in that cycle of paying attention, remembering, recalling, and such saying that person has learned? And then part three is rubber to road. It's how do we form the habit And what are the examples? What does good look like? An exemplar that you can base your own journey against. Yeah, well, I think like you said, you unpack this really well in the book um, and give the reader some real clarity on the why. And I really liked when you started talking about, um, you know, the what over the how kind of emphasis in our educational process. And again, um, to the to the listener, I want to say this book, if you are a young professional in college right now and you want to be a strength coach, read this book while you're in college because at the end of the day, you're learning the how piece and then you're bringing all the what pieces in and that's going to make those what pieces so much more powerful. But it's interesting when I listen to this book, I think it, you know, it transcends your intention for it and goes into any avenue where you need to get somebody to understand something and have clarity on where they're going to go. And it's not um, that our profession is exclusive to this problem. I mean, doctors have the same problem. Lawyers have the same problem. Everybody has the same, you know, we learn the what, because that's, that's the, that's the deliverable, right? You have to understand your what, otherwise nobody's going to buy it from you. But we don't learn the how uh, piece uh, and nobody really takes the time. And again, commend you for doing this. Um, Why do you think that is though? Why, why is it that we haven't done a good job of understanding the how? And now you're, you're obviously instigating this, but is there, and I had this conversation with other people, is it because we don't perceive that people pay for that or that there's a value prop to having that? Or what, what is the instigator of that? Oh. There is an entire <laughs> bachelor's of science, an MSc, and a couple PhDs to boot because what we're getting into now is, is philosophy. We're getting into core philosophy. And, and, and so... <clears throat> There's a number of things. I'll say a few things, and then we can we can freestyle. The first one is this: I, I was speaking with a a well known professional in our industry the other day, and he has he's achieved great things, great things. And he said this to me: We're having this exact conversation. He says to me that when we go out and we ask 
professionals in our industry what they want. And we give them a list of things. Hey, I want to learn more about, you know, methodology or nutrition and that, 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 that. And, and let's say the list is primarily the what, the raw material of what we do. But then you have a couple lines on, you know, communication and behavior change and, and, and the softer skills. People will always rate the, the communication and the soft skills the highest. Yes, this is the gap. This is what we need. I want more of that. But what this person was explaining to me was that when you actually look at putting the products out there, where a product is titled as, you know, coaching and communication for, um, you know, for teaching movement or whatever it might be or for behavior change versus you have a course on, you know, the, the three types of periodization to optimize human performance. You're going to get a thousand people on the latter and, and you'd be lucky to get a hundred on the former. And so there appears to be this, this self-deception and not that anything sinister is going on, but we believe cognitively, we know that the space between us and others, our capacity to translate what's on the program into the person, we know that's where we make the meaning. We know that that's where the value is. We know that that is the arena. That's where the game is played. But ultimately, because this space between us is invisible, it's difficult to break into. It takes tremendous effort to reflect and to tinker on how we're engaging in that space. Ultimately, call it cognitive ease. When I can go back and I can see the reps and the sets, I can see the exercise, I can see the macro micronutrients, I start to gravitate back towards the raw material. And so I continue on my work site to bring in more wood and more tools. But am I, am I building the house I want? Am I actually putting it together? Am I moving from knowledge of what to knowledge of how? And if you look at the great wisdom traditions, you go back to uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, the Stoics. They called their, their practice a practice. Their wisdom came through action. Their wisdom came through doing. So knowledge of what is very propositional. It's very cognitive. I can explain it. But to, great, you know the movement. Now let me see you enact it. Let me see you take Scott over there and coach it. Bring your knowledge into the world. That transcends what into how. And that is scary. Hmm. The how is the lifelong pursuit. The how is where the judgment occurs. The how is where the success and the failure lives. And I believe then that there are a number of reasons, but notably, the what is visible. It's accessible. And I don't mean this to undervalue it, but I believe it is the easier of the two to acquire. Mm. The how, we will continue to pursue a better how, which is just another way to say skill the skill of coaching. We will pursue that for the rest of our lives. And so, <clears throat> in fairness, I believe, though, 
until we give a structure to the how, until we give a vocabulary, until we make the invisible visible, doesn't matter how much people want it. They have nothing to grasp onto. How can I get an optimal grip of something that I cannot grip? <laughs> and so my, my attempt my attempt in the language of coaching is to create a structure that, if you would, allows you to peer into the matrix. And can you peer in and see the entire thing? No, you cannot see the entire thing. But I'm trying to give enough structure that if you understand the structure and the vocabulary around language, its influence on focus and movement, that you can then behave in a way as if you completely understand it down to the most nuanced detail. The reality is you ask a, an elite athlete, <clears throat> how do you do what you do? They can summon an answer, but many of them simply say, I don't know. Mm. When you go to a great coach, how do you do what you do? They can summon an answer, but oftentimes they don't necessarily know why they are so good at what they do. But yet we continue to practice. <clears throat> In my mind, I want to create something that takes that and respects the fact that it is too complex to put into words. I would be naive to think that I could articulate in words something that is ultimately ineffable. It's an experience. We know when it's going well, but we can't always put it into words. And I don't think we should be able to put everything into words. But what I have put into words is what I think you can put into words. And it describes a structure, a pattern of communication behavior that seems to have a correlation, a causation of a pattern of change in human movement. And so all I've observed is a pattern of human communication that seems to mirror a pattern of change in human movement. And I peered into that and say, what's the structure? What's the vocabulary? What are the teachable parts that if I know these elements, all the other pieces that sit under it come automatically? And, and that, getting a little bit philosophical and abstract here, is, is a large view on what versus how and how have I tried to take something that ultimately is ineffable, is difficult to get an optimal grip on, but give something that people can actually hold, apply, and use to scaffold their own skill. Well, I'm, I'm glad you riffed there and went on for a little while with your passion because that is uh, what is deeply um, imbibed in this book. But um, the thing that uh, I took away from listening to it and had to pause for my own consideration is I've always considered myself a relatively... Um, strong user of vocabulary and language. Um, and yet I found myself challenged by, you know, this process and actually sort of finding the words when you have those different stimulus points in some of the co coaching cue moments. And I wonder, you know, because part of this, I'm kind of, it's a long winded sort of expression of what I want to say, but ultimately, you know, the, the reader has to recognize their own um, 
failings in some sense of their own understanding of language itself and proficiency of language itself. And you do this really unique um, sort of poke the bear moment of sort of explaining that, you know, when you go into your 3D model, this is a verb and this is a noun and this is a preposition. And I found myself going, preposition? I haven't heard that word in a long time. Okay. <laughs> so what is that? So, you, so you, you start sort of thinking about, yeah, that is a noun and that that I do use ver- a verb, etc. And you start tying back into this, you know, you learned language is what you learned language for, and this is how it sort of expresses itself. Um, and you do it really well in there, but it does, I think my, my take on some of this is it's, and this is why I think this book is so powerful and people need to read it is that you take something that, um, we take for granted, which is language after we've learned it and don't recognize how one powerful it is to how it can, can both be empowering, but it can also be restricting and it can be deviating, et cetera, in the way it's used. And you give the reader a, a bit of a roadmap as to how to use it effectively to create what they're trying to create. And I, I think that's the greatest soil seeding um, element of this book. So good on you. But if you have any comments on that yeah. process, I'd... a couple different things. Um, and, and I'll say this. Some of what I feel are the most important insights in the book only revealed themselves to me when I was writing it. Mm. And so I, it, and I could already probably do the second edition. And I think most <laughs> authors say that. Um, You're going to be poking holes in it in five what years. I wanna, or what I, I want to do here is what I'm, what I'm studying right now more than anything else is this, this idea of the genesis of language. And, and so, so often, and, and this is that, that Descartes error, we think of language as the occupant of the mind. And, and very often we, we separate it from the body. And even we hear now there's, there's people in, in, in skill acquisition, there, there appears to be social media wars on to cue or not to cue, constraints or cue, language or drills, and for me, we're, we're, that's the wrong perspective. The mind and the body, the mind works through the body. There's not a mind and a body. The mind works through the body. You know, the mind attends through the body. Literally, my ability to tap this glass, I say I'm attending to the glass, but I attend through my fingers. Mm. Someone who is visually impaired attends to their world through the edge of this walking stick they use to tap the ground. And so we attend through our body. And and all language is doing is helping us work through and connect our body to an environment. And this is why this idea of internal language, body only, versus external language connects body to environment, which is why when you deeply understand it, you realize that that nothing makes sense around internal cueing to cognitively attempt to shut myself off from the world I'm interacting in and with, to think myself so important and powerful that all I need to do is think about my own body independent of the world I'm embedded in. There's, There's deep philosophical challenge beyond just coaching 
with why internal cueing in, in its totality is detrimental or at the very least not as beneficial as external cueing. And so there's this relationship. People need to understand that there's a deep relationship between language being built up and out of a body that moves in a world. And, and it's just simply understanding how to speak the words that echo how movement is formed. And so here we go. Movement is ultimately constrained by space and time. I move in a space in a certain time. And so these are the ingredients of, of thought. You know, I'm on my way up. I'm feeling down. In the future, I will. Back then, I did. Right? We use space and time. It is embedded in our language because it is expressed in the way we move and live. And so if we looked at, okay, I'm trying to navigate space and time. And for, for those of us that are movement coaches, yeah, kinetics, kinematics, space and time, gotcha, okay. And so now it's a matter of if the body is constrained and driven to move in space and time, should our language not be a compass, be a guide that operates on the same foundation of space and time? And I think intuitively you would say yes. And so let's go to the three Ds. And these three Ds stand for distance, direction, and description. They represent the three core elements that are oftentimes used in what we're calling an external cue, a cue that connects mind through body to environment. And so let's use a very simple example of a sprint, which I use all the time, but I think it's a movement we can all relate to. And so if I watch someone, and I was just doing sessions yesterday where this was the case, who's not getting enough extension on the push. We feel that they can generate more horizontal power when they push. But to do that, they need more extension or faster extension of the lower limb. Okay? So we've, we, we've kind of seen this technical error that we now want to put into words. If I give an internal cue and I say, I need more knee extension or I need more hip extension or maybe I need more dorsiflexion, let's now analyze that in terms of space and time. One, have I helped you move better in space? Well, possibly, but not due to the cue. My cue requires you to understand that when I say extend knee, extend hip, dorsiflex, ankle, that you can take that focus and you yourself, Scott, know where to place it in space. Well, do I extend back? Do I extend down? Right? Am I trying to push the ground? Am I trying to go forward? See, I haven't anchored it to something concrete. There are no nouns, person, place, or thing. There's no physical space for you to interact with in that cue, such that I leave it up to you. Now, for an elite individual, Scott, that might be okay. And this is why we know with experts, internal cues are less detrimental to experts. I'm not saying, and nor is there evidence that they are beneficial, but they are less detrimental. Why? Probably because they can place that cue, here's the C word, in context. But if I'm working with a novice 
who doesn't have the background information implicitly in how they move, the relevant environment features, pushing away, going towards, then that cue is kind of free-floating in the ether without a home, okay? And so that's, so where's the space in it? Now time. I need more knee extension. Fast or slow, I just don't know, right? Where's my verb? Where's my action word? Push, drive, punch, explode, burst, snap. Verbs give our language action, which is to say, give our words timing. How am I trying to move from A to B? Just to put a footnote on that for the listeners, if I were to give you the word push away versus punch away, do those words feel the same? I've yet to have anyone say yes. I say, which word is slower? Push immediately, everybody says. Exactly. So at first glance, we just think of words as little squiggles, little sound bites floating through the air. But these words had to be built out of something. Hmm. They're built out of a body that moves in a world, and thus they have literal, real sensory motor triggers, echoes that the body can use. And so internal cues oftentimes suffer from not telling me where to move in space and not giving me the temporality, the timing to know how to do it. Let's now contrast that cue with a small difference. Instead of focus on extending your knee or even extending your knee rapidly, at least then I give you some of the timing pieces, I tell you to drive the ground away rapidly. Ah, ground now embeds me in the environment. And whether or not I like it, I'm always in that environment. And so the, the ground becomes for me the now. It becomes the physical space I'm interacting with. Drive rapidly makes sure that you are very clear that this is meant to be done fast. Now, rapidly is fairly ambiguous. It doesn't really give me a sense specifically on where to move. But now check this out. When we drive, we use that word, we drive a car. We drive a ball with a driver on the golf course. Or we drive through a nail. Two of the three of those examples, drive, are what? They're horizontal. They're forceful, horizontal things. Again, our language reveals its connection to body and environment if we look deep enough and allow it. So then, drive the ground back rapidly. The distance in the language is close. It could be close or far, but it's close because I'm talking about ground. So the distance relates to the noun. Where am I moving? Direction. Drive the ground back rapidly. Ah, so I'm trying to move away from something. So I have this thing, the ground, that I'm trying to get away from. And drive rapidly tells me how to get away from it. Drive embeds speed and horizontal, and rapidly, just in case I wasn't clear, confirms to you as the listener that this needs to be done with speed. Now, you don't have to tell the athlete any of that. 
for this to work. That is the beauty. But I believe in explaining that to coaches, all of a sudden there's this magnetic drive that one brightens your own intuition. God, I've already actually seen that hundreds, thousands of times. I just didn't know why that was working. But ultimately now what I just outlined there is how we learn to mechanize language to get aha, to get light bulb movements more often, but also to define that the language I'm trying to teach people to adopt is embedded deeply, whether or not we like it or know it in how our body organizes itself in this lived world. Two of the things I I wanted to uh, pay homage to that I think the listeners should hear as well, because you said it before you started, and that was, you know, the the ramblings and paramblings of the people in the Twitter sphere saying this is good or that is bad or whatever always seems to lose the concept of context. So you, you talk about initially this idea of the position pattern, power performance, which comes from, I think your exos background and some of the stuff that you've done there. And the idea that recognition at first with your process of how you look at an athlete, understanding where the deficit, true deficits are and, and using your skills and toolbox to actually apply to that. And then the other piece that I think is really powerful is you, you sort of pay homage to the coaching um, strategy in terms of the long loop, short loop, and recognize that in the beginning with the idea of describe it, demonstrate it, that's a place where the internal cue can live in, 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 in the early phases to gain and give clarity could be through video, through demonstration, through expression, what you want it to look like so that they understand it. And then beyond that, you use this language to sort of imbibe the, 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 in, the emphasis and directionality, et cetera, of it. Um, qu- quickly sort of, you know, tie those two together or that, that a little bit together so that the listener understands that you're not, you're not saying this is the only way you're saying this is a part of how you make your car more powerful, so to speak. Our sponsor rep performance is a web application launched by co-founders, Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at rep performanceapp.com today. Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. You said a number of really important things there that uh, we can go through very quickly and simply. The first is you need to know what to coach before you know how to coach. 
And so, as I say throughout the book, and we've said it here, this is in no way meant to undermine the critical importance of the knowledge of what. You know, if, if, if I'm coaching leg action when the issue's in the arm action, it doesn't matter how effective my language is, words are not going to work in that instance. And so the 3P model is just a very simple strategy to get you to the right priority such that you can start building the right language strategy on top of it. Absolutely. Going back to the long loop and the short loop, which relates to 100% the model, the coaching communication loop, this overall structure that shows you the categories, the homes, the cubby holes for all your different types of communication. And it goes right back to this idea of the what and the how. And that when we describe and demonstrate, and then after movement, when we debrief, call this the fringes of the coaching communication loop. This is where we say, okay, we're not in movement mode. We're in understanding mode, cognitive understanding, rationalization. Hey, are we on the same page mode? And this is where you can use the full spectrum of language. Hey, your knee was out of sorts. Angle wasn't quite right. Speed of the push wasn't there. And so we're using biomechanical language. We're using expressive motivational language if the problem is in effort. Whatever it is, no problem. What we are then saying on the rift that we just had is once you've diagnosed the priority, you've aligned on their cognitive understanding of it. And let me just put a footnote. How many times have you heard the athlete say, I know what you want me to do. I just don't know how to do it. And let that just echo through the airwaves here that that shows us that the language we use to explain what is going wrong is not synonymous with the language we must use to know how to fix it and such that we protect then the cue. You describe and demonstrate, but then the cue, it's the moment before the movement. We protect that to use the language that is best equipped to turn words into a focus that harmonizes with the way our body is built to move in a world. And that comes through our external cues and analogies, heavily focusing on putting a visual in the mind that hides the micro, hides the parts inside of the whole. And so you're, you're, you're dead on. The book in no way eradicates any category of language. Not a chance. Couldn't do it. Don't believe I should. And don't believe that that's truthful. But rather, it's an organizational strategy. Which type of language is best placed this far away from the movement versus this far away from the movement? Ice the cake and, and tell the listener why the analogy metaphor side of things is so powerful. What You take the, list, the, the reader into that and really start to play with language to get the result. What is, what is the power there? Why do you like to read fiction books? Mm-hmm. Right there. Why do you like story? Why do you like it when you're reading a Malcolm Gladwell book He spends three quarters of the chapter telling you a story and then a quarter of the chapter to tell you then why you should care. (laughs) Ultimately, we have existed uh, pre-book. We are storytellers. We are narrative creatures, a past, a present, and a future. 
our visual cortices in terms of brain real estate well outpace, if you would, our semantic cortices. And so to the degree that we use language that provokes imagery, it is just far easier and more interesting for us to go along with it. And so when I use abstract concepts like extend an elbow, extend a knee, versus literal ideas of push ground, drive towards, barbells to ceilings, becomes more visual, to explode off the line like a jet taking off. I expand the visual architecture there even more. And so we're trying to use analogies and metaphors because they're visual, they are memorable. But the key thing our brain is brilliant at is taking something we are familiar with to help us grasp something we are less familiar with. And so ultimately, analogies leverage knowns within the mind. I've seen a jet take off, and I see how the low to high relates to a sprint. I've seen a pane of glass shatter, so I can relate to driving the barbell off my chest as if to shatter a pane of glass. And I know that the energy that would be required to do that is one of violence, one of anger, one of speed. But I know all these things, here it is, Scott, without having to explain them. Hmm. I feel the knowledge. I embody the sense of what to do. That is movement. So how do our words transcend themselves and provide you with an echo of emotion and feeling that that is where the knowledge is? That's where the best cues come from, and that's why analogies are so powerful. They Words move us, and the kinds of words that move us tend to be in the form of story, which is an analogy. You wouldn't care about the story if you couldn't relate to it. And the only reason you can relate to it is because you relate it to something that is familiar to you. That, by definition, is an analogy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot here to finish this puppy. But uh, you, so you go from America to Ireland. Um, I'm sure you have a story of where you used language of Americanism and it fell flat on its face and you had, you had to rewind and figure oh, out. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> okay. My, my, my favorite one, it, it, a little abstract, is drink the Kool-Aid. So... In America, we talk about, oh, that person's drank the Kool-Aid. So I'll never forget, I was coaching NFL Combine, and when a player would just have a rock star rep, I would call those Kool-Aid reps. I'm like, you need to drink the Kool-Aid on that one. Never forget it. Digest it. Become it. Okay? And these were – so athletes were like, man, coach, when am I going to get that Kool-Aid rep? Right? So – this whole idea, we built this energy around it. And so I'll never forget, I'm, I'm within my first year coaching, doing a speed session with our sevens. And I'm like, that's a Kool-Aid rep. You need to drink the rep. And they're looking at me like, what is this crazy man on about? And so, <laughs> so there, there's one of what, what I could give you is, is many examples. And it, it doesn't sound like you've gotten there yet, but there's a paragraph in, um, let, let's just, let's for fun here. Let me, let me read it because I think it's really short and uh, it's just, it's, it's too much fun not to, uh, not to do it here. So it's the, uh, it's a paragraph. Where is it? Okay. Um, Familiarity. Okay, here we go. Uh, 
East of the Atlantic, you don't go on vacation, you go on holiday. At the airport, you stand in a queue instead of a line. At your hotel, you'll take the lift to the first floor, which you'll find puzzling until the receptionist senior confusion says, we call the second floor the first floor, which makes this the ground floor. <laughs> At dinner, you'll ask where the bathroom is, only to be told that the toilet is down the hall and to the left. Finally, when trying to find that perfect companion to your sandwich, you'll quickly learn that fries are chips, chips are crisps, and the funny thing on the menu called goujons is code for chicken strips. So there you go, in a paragraph form to end us, that, that's been my experience learning language in Ireland. <laughs> that's beautiful. Well, uh, you know, true to form, I want to stay within that hour that I asked you for. It was a fantastic hour. Uh, this is, uh, as I expected, it would be a, a beautiful elaboration of, of what you've written here. For the listener, The Language of Coaching, Art and Science of Teaching Movement by Nick Winkleman. Uh, I highly recommend it. Nick, thanks for taking the time today, and, and best of luck to the sell of the book and to the reiteration of it over time and everything else, sir. Uh, Scotty, thank you so much for the opportunity. You have a good day, sir. You too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>